This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Welcome to another Witnesses of History podcast, and in this edition we're focusing on the events around D-Day in 1944. The first report is by General Matthew B. Ridgway as the US paratroops leave for France on the 5th of June, D-Day, minus one. I looked at my watch. It was 10 p.m., 5th of June, 1944, D-Day, minus one. For men of the 82nd Airborne, 12 hours before H-Hour, the battle for Normandy had begun. We flew in a V of Vs, like a gigantic spearhead without a shaft. England was on a double daylight saving time, and it was still full light, but eastward, over the channel, the skies were darkening. Two hours later, night had fallen, and below us we could see glints of yellow flame from the Germans' anti-aircraft guns on the Channel Islands. We watched them curiously and without fear, as a high-flying duck may watch a hunter, knowing that we were too high and far away for their fire to reach us. In the plane, the men sat quietly, deep, in their own thoughts. They joked a little, and broke now and then into ribald laughter. Nervousness and tension and the cold that blasted through the open door had its effect upon us all. Now and then, a paratrooper would rise, lumber heavily to the little bathroom in the tail of the plane, find he could not push through the narrow doorway in his bulky gear, and come back mumbling his profane opinion of the designers of the C-47 aeroplane. Soon, the crew chief passed a bucket around, but this did not entirely solve our problem. A man strapped and buckled into full combat gear finds it extremely difficult to reach certain essential positions of his anatomy, and his efforts are not made easier by the fact that his comrades are watching him, jeering derisively and offering gratuitous advice. Wing to wing, the big planes snuggled close in their tight formation. We crossed to the coast of France. I was sitting straight across the aisle from the doorless exit. Even at 1,500 feet, I could tell the channel was rough, for we passed over a small patrol craft, one of the checkpoints for our navigators, and the light it displayed for us was bobbing like a cork in a mill race. No lights showed on the land, but in the pale glow of a rising moon, I could clearly see each farm and field below. And I remember thinking how peaceful the land looked, each house and hedgerow, path and little stream bathed in the silver of the moonlight. And I felt that if it were not for the noise of our engines, we'd be able to hear the farm dogs baying and the sound of the barnyard roosters crowing. D-Day, 6th of June, 1944. An anonymous German private's view. On that night of 6th of June, none of us expected the invasion anymore. There was a strong wind, thick cloud cover, and the enemy aircraft had not bothered us more than that day than usual. But then, in the night... The air was full of innumerable planes. We thought, what are they demolishing tonight? But then it started. I was at the wireless set myself. One message followed the other. Parachutists landed here. Gliders reported there. And finally, landing craft approaching. Some of our guns fired as best they could. In the morning, a huge naval force was sighted. That was the last report our advanced observation posts could send us before they were overwhelmed. 
and it was the last report we received about the situation. It was no longer possible to get an idea of what was happening. Wireless communications were jammed, the cables cut, our officers had lost grasp of the situation. Infantrymen who were streaming back told us that their positions on the coast had been overrun or that the few bunkers in our sector had either been shot up or blown to pieces. Right in the middle of all this turmoil, I got orders to go with my car for a reconnaissance towards the coast. With a few infantrymen, I reported to a lieutenant. His orders were to retake a village nearby. While he was still talking to me to explain the position, a British tank came rolling towards us from behind, from a direction in which we had not even suspected the presence of the enemy. The enemy tank immediately opened fire on us. Resistance was out of the question. I saw how a group of Polish infantrymen went over to the enemy, carrying their machine guns, waving their arms. The officer and myself hid in the brush. When we tried to get through to our lines in the evening, British paratroops caught us. At first I was rather depressed, of course. I, an old soldier, a prisoner of war after a few hours of invasion. But when I saw the material behind the enemy front, I could only say, Old man, how lucky you have been. And when the sun rose the next morning, I saw the invasion fleet lying off the shore, ship beside ship, and without a break, troops, weapons, tanks, munitions and vehicles were being unloaded in a steady stream. We now have the Daily Telegraph's report of the D-Day landings reported the following day in the newspaper. Allied armies began the liberation of Europe early yesterday morning when the greatest invasion of all time was launched with landings from sea and air at several points on the coast of Normandy. Late last night, fighting was going on in the streets of Caen, an important road junction 10 miles inland at the base of the Cherbourg Peninsula. Communique number two, issued from General Eisenhower's HQ just after midnight, stated that reports of operations so far show that our forces succeeded in their initial landing. Fighting continues. Pilots returning from the front last night reported Allied troops moving inland with the beaches completely in our hands. Concentrations of German armour were seen moving towards the battlefield from the back areas. According to German accounts, the landings were made at about 12 points along 135 miles of coast from west of Cherbourg to Le Havre. The landings, which involved the use of 4,000 ships with several thousand smaller craft, were made under cover of the most gigantic air umbrella yet seen. Between midnight and 8 o'clock, 31,000 Allied airmen were over France. The bombing was supported by a bombardment from 640 naval guns, battleships, cruisers, monitors, destroyers and specially designed close support vessels were engaged. Naval losses were reported to be surprisingly small. The first landings were made during the night when airborne troops of both British and American formations flew in well over a thousand troop carrying aircraft and gliders. A remarkable feature of the day's operations was the absence of effective opposition by the Luftwaffe. And now for some lighter relief, a report from 1348 by Henry Knighton of women aping men. 
In these days, a rumour and a great complaint arose among the people that when tournaments were held in every place a company of ladies appeared, somewhat like performers in interludes, in the diverse and marvellous dress of a man, to the number sometimes of about forty, sometimes fifty, ladies from the more handsome and the more beautiful, but not the better sort, of the entire kingdom. In divided tunics, that is, one part of one kind and the other of another kind, with small hoods and lyripipes flying about the head in the manner of cords, and well encircled with silver or gold, even having across their stomachs below the middle knives, which they vulgarly called daggers, placed in pouches from above. Thus they came on excellent chargers or other horses, splendidly adorned, to the place of the tournament, and in such manner they spent and wasted their riches and injured their bodies with abuses and ludicrous wantonness that the common voice of the people exclaimed. Thus they neither respected God nor blushed on account of the modest outcries of the people, having freed themselves from the restraint of matrimonial chastity. But God, against these as against all others, appeared with a marvellous remedy, putting their frivolity to rout, for at the places and times designed for this vanity he defeated them with heavy rainstorms, thunder, and the flash of lightning, and with the fury of diverse extraordinary tempests. And we conclude this edition with two reports from D-Day Plus One, the 7th of June 1944, Firstly, by an anonymous staff officer of the 17 SS Panzer Grenadier Division of the German Army. On the 7th of June, our division received orders to leave the marshalling area in Tours and to move to the invasion front in Normandy. Everyone was in good and eager mood to see action again, happy that the pre-invasion spell of uncertainty and waiting was snapped at last. Our motorised columns were coiling along the road towards the invasion beaches, then something happened that left us in a daze. Spurts of fire flicked along the column and splashes of dust staccatoed the road. Everyone was piling out of vehicles and scuttling for the neighbouring fields. Several vehicles were already in flames. This attack ceased as suddenly as it had crashed upon us 15 minutes before. The men started drifting back to the columns, again pale and shaky, wondering how they'd survived this fiery rain of bullets. This had been our first experience with the fighter bombers and the march column was now completely disrupted and every man was on his own to pull out of this blazing column as best he could. And it was none too soon because an hour later the whole thing started all over again, only much worse this time. When this attack was over, the length of the road was strewn with splintered anti-tank guns, the pride of our division, flaming motors and charred implements of war. The march was called off and all vehicles that were left were hidden in the dense bushes or in barns. No one dared show himself out in the open anymore. Now the men started looking at each other. This was different from what we thought it would be like. It had been our first experience with our new foe, the American. During the next few days we found out how seriously he was going about his business. Although now we only travelled at nights and along secondary roads rimmed with hedges and bushes, we encountered innumerable wrecks giving toothless testimony that some motorists had not benefited from the bitter experience that we had. And now James G. Bramrall's report. He's a British paratrooper who's seeking directions on D-Day, plus one. A dog barked at my approach. 
From the corners of my eye, I could see a stealthy figure flit from behind a haystack into the shadow of the barn. There was no answer at my first knock. The household was obviously fast asleep. I knocked louder, and this time I heard a scurrying on the stairs and a sudden clamour of French voices. Footsteps approached the door, withdrew, hesitated, then approached again. The door opened. On the way, I had been searching for suitable words with which to introduce ourselves, some calming yet elegant phrase worthy of the French gift of expression and of their infallible flair for the dramatic moment. But at the sight of the motherly, middle-aged peasant, the gulf of the years disappeared. I might have been back in 1939, an English tourist on a walking tour, dropping in to ask for a glass of cider and some cam camembert. Excuse me, nous, madame. Nous sommes les parachutistes anglais faisons partie du département allié. There was a moment of scrutiny. Then the woman folded me in her arms. The tears streamed down her face and in between kisses she was shouting for her husband for lamps for wine. In a moment I was carried by the torrent of welcome into the warm candlelit kitchen. Bottles of cognac and calvados appeared on the table. Children came clattering down the wooden stairs and we found ourselves an evil-looking look group of camouflaged cutthroats surrounded and overwhelmed by the pent-up emotions of four years. The farmer and his wife wanted us to stay and drink, to laugh, to cry, to shake hands over and over again. They wanted to touch us, to tell us about the occupation, to share with us their implacable hatred of the Bosch. It seemed that the moment so long awaited could not be allowed to be spoilt by realities till every drop of emotion was exhausted. I was nearly as much affected as they were. Warmed by the fiery trickle of Calvados, I rose to this, certainly one of the greatest occasions of my life, so completely that I forgot all about the drop, all about the marshes, all about the battery. It was the sight of my companions, bewildered by all this emotion and talk, automatically drinking glass after glass, that suddenly reminded me of what we'd come for. I began politely to insist on answers to questions which had already been brushed aside more than once. Where were we? How far away were the nearest Germans? Once more, the questions were ignored. Ah, mon Dieu! Ne nous quitte pas maintenant? Ah, les pauvres malheureux! Ils sont tous moulés! It was moving and exasperating. At last, I managed to get what we wanted, a pocket compass and a promise of escort to the hard road through the marshes to Varaville. Hodge and I went our way, leaving the Sten Gunners, overcome by their first taste of French hospitality, to sleep it off in the hayloft. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley, a man who clearly cannot speak French. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>